in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's back with money with Gabby Dunn. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn, your financial spirit guide. You should probably find a new guide. You guys are probably used to the ad breaks on Bad With Money by now. At least I hope you are, because they're helping me pay off my goddamn auto loan. And also, they're funny. I'm funny in them. 
Listen to the ads. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, you'll hear ads all the time. Mine are the funniest ones, though, right? Most of you probably didn't even know what Stamps.com was before they started advertising on all your favorite shows. And I'll bet all your favorite shows are still in production, largely thanks to those sponsorship deals. I talked a lot about how important these deals are to independent creators in our Get Rich or Die vlogging episode. And while Bad With Money isn't an independent production, shout out to Panoply, our network, purveyor of many fine audio programs. We rely on ads to keep the lights on in the recording studio. But another thing you probably know about if you listen to podcasts is Welcome to Night Vale, which is a fiction podcast that appeared seemingly out of nowhere a few years ago and set the iTunes charts on fire with its bizarre mix of public radio satire, supernatural storytelling, existential dread, romance, subversive political commentary. There are so many things that stick out about Night Vale the first time you listen to it. The narrator's vaguely ominous vocal pattern, the moody, dissonant soundtrack, the persistent presence of seemingly evil deer. It's a weird show. And there's one thing in particular that's always stuck out to me about it, and it's part of the show that doesn't even have anything to do with the story. We hope you'll consider becoming one of our donors. We genuinely depend on our monthly donors to be able to keep making this show. And as a thank you, we provide all sorts of cool benefits, like exclusive member episodes of Night Vale and personalized audio thank yous from our narrator, Cecil Baldwin. Now, it's not unique for podcasts to ask for donations, of course. That happens all the time. What's unique is that Night Vale doesn't combine that with ads. And for a show as wildly popular as Night Vale, which has spawned a best-selling novel and was recently featured on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, that means its creators are leaving a lot of money on the table in the name of maintaining a direct relationship with their fans. Anyone whose philosophy involves subversive politics and being weird about money is someone I want to talk to. So this week, I've invited Welcome to Night Vale creators Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner on the show to talk about their creative philosophies and how they're dealing with their unexpected success. What changed when you guys were like, oh, we could make a living off of this? It was July of 2013. Uh, so that was one year. We started in June of 2012. Uh, and we had, you know, completely normal, I mean, maybe better than normal growth in that year. Uh, you know, we got uh, a shout out on NPR Pop Culture Happy Hour, which was really cool. Uh, and uh, John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats uh, tweeted about us, uh, which was a nice little bump. Uh, and we ultimately ended up that first year, we did 150,000 downloads, um, which was way more than we ever thought we would get. And it was very exciting. Uh, and then in July of 2013, right kind of at the start, it was right after our one-year anniversary episode, um, we just started seeing our downloads just skyrocketing. And it just kept going up and up, and we couldn't figure out what was happening. And we were like, contact, we, you know, we reached out to like the NPR pop culture, but happy hour people being like, did you mention us again? And they were like, no, we have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and then we finally figured out that it was Tumblr, that Tumblr had discovered us, and it was just kind of this word of mouth thing that oh, was happening Tumblr. on Tumblr. <laughs> yeah, Tumblr. Tumblr, yeah. Uh-huh. So we, we that first year we did 150,000 downloads. That July, just within that month of July, we did 2.5 million downloads. And then in that August, and just in that August, we did 8.5 million downloads. And we became the number one podcast on iTunes, and we stayed there for, I think, over two months. I think it was almost four months. What were your day jobs? Jeffrey and I have very different stories here because Jeffrey really liked his job and I had a very shitty job. I was uh, selling green energy on the streets of New York. 
So I would just kind of stand on the street in New York for about six hours at a time doing that. What was not to love about that? I don't understand. (laughs) Uh, So I quit the moment Nightfall blew up. Long before we had any sort of solid uh, business plan or monetary base. Like when I quit, we were not making nearly enough money for me to quit. But I just sort of quit on this thing of like, I'll scrape things together. If I can get to like a certain amount in this year, that'll be fine. You know, I figured, listen, we, we our podcast is taking off. Maybe I can teach podcasting classes. We'll figure out like an ebook of our scripts or something. Like I was just kind of trying to figure out if I can get some small baseline of income, it will be worth it. So I'm just going to quit right away. What about you, Jeffrey? Uh, I worked at a place called Film Forum here in New York City. It's a oh, non- yeah, I know film, you know, film They're fantastic. And I loved it there. And I had been there for seven years. For the past more than 10 years uh, before I left that job, I had always been in um, fundraising for nonprofit theaters and dance companies. You guys are super interesting to me because it felt like you weren't saying we're going to make money directly off this podcast, but rather we're going to use the podcast to parlay into other things. And like as a YouTuber, I think a lot of YouTubers are like, okay, well, I'm, I'm doing the thing. So why isn't money coming from that? Whereas like seems like from the beginning, you guys were like, we'll do a book, we'll do a tour. And that's sort of very business minded. I think some of it is business. Uh, I mean, we made the decision early on. It was mostly just an artistic decision not to have ads on our podcast. Um, That's unusual. It is unusual. But a lot of it was we just didn't – it didn't make any sense to have ads because we didn't know really where to put them without, like, breaking up the flow of the show. And I don't know. We weren't that popular early on, so it didn't seem like there was any money to be made from ads anyway that we couldn't make from donations. Um, I think with our audience size now, that's probably changed, although we're still not running ads on our show. We also, coming out of theater and just being writers and people who like producing theater live shows, um, it just made sense that we would go into the world of, like, let's put this show on a stage somewhere. Let's rent a theater and do this show in some city. And if people show up, that seems like a really honest way to make a buck and it's also fun for us because this is going to be our full-time job we've both left our other jobs so let's make the most of this have you guys had either of you studied business at all my dad was a musician and he and his uh, college friend basically wrote musicals together and they started when i was about five years old uh, they started writing musicals for children to do in schools Mm -hmm. Um, and couldn't find anyone willing to publish that. And so they just started a publishing company called Bad Wolf Press. And so they published, I think before he died, something like 50 plays. I might be overstating that, but it was a lot. Um, And So he was doing essentially what you're doing. Right. So I I was raised by somebody who was a working artist, and I learned a lot from that. I mean, I think the main thing I learned is that if you're a working artist, about 90% of your time is working, and about 10% of the time is art. (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, he had a phone um, that was the customer service phone for Bad Wolf Press. That if, if it rang at any time of the day, he would run and get it. Um, he did Excel spreadsheets and he went to marketing conventions to learn how marketing worked. Um, and he did all that so that he could occasionally write music and be paid for it. Do you find that your fans are more loyal or more grateful that instead of having them listen to ads or? charging them for the podcast that you're actually like giving them a show experience for their money i don't know if grateful's the word like i i I don't think i think with advertising if it's not there they don't notice and if it is there they get angry 
um, is often the stance that happens because we're starting new uh, podcasts now. You know, we we released Alice Isn't Dead in March and we're releasing Within the Wires. And um, with both of those, we're doing advertising because we don't have the same merch and uh, live show base for them. And yeah, the response for Alice ads have been kind of baffling because... You know, the Alice advertising in, like, say, a 25-minute episode, there might be three minutes of advertising. And mm-hmm. then you go to iTunes reviews, and there's multiple reviews being like, in a 15-minute episode, there's 10 minutes of advertising, um, which is just <laughs> oh, such they a... they see it totally differently. I mean, my partner and I have 200 videos up. I would say seven of those are have ads. And people are like, most of your content is ads. <laughs> yeah, there's yep. this real... And I totally get it, because, you know, as a person who like watches tv or whatever it, 10 seconds of ads feels this like the same length of 10 minutes of the thing you actually want to watch i think there was like a disconnect uh at least for our show where they didn't understand that that was like our income right that's that's the way you make money doing an, a free internet show right or, and yeah. people think that po- i mean most podcasts run ads people think that that's like a very normal thing. So it is fascinating to me that, that you guys sort of kept Night Vale away from that. When we were first approached by people saying, hey, so-and-so would love to run an ad on your show, we were soliciting kind of in a public radio style thing of uh, donations, memberships from people. Say like, hey, if you like our show, throw us a couple bucks, maybe uh, subscribe for $5 a month. We'll send you some benefits, things like that. And we still do that. And uh, so it seemed kind of like a thing where we, we didn't want to build that sort of background of like members and benefits and donations and then suddenly be like uh yeah we're gonna run ads here too and the ad money early on was was just not uh equivalent to uh to what the membership was you know the donations are are really important i think in a lot of ways for for keeping things running but the the two main sources are merch and and the live shows and and um those are i think two sources that most podcasts don't have yeah well Um, i think night Vale feels like a club (laughs) <laughs> and like you want to be in it and so you want to buy the shirt so that you can like have someone come up to you in public and go oh i w- i listen to this secret thing too which is insane also how you guys have managed to still seem like a secret club even though it's like one of the biggest podcasts that's uh that's funny it's the very reason why i wear uh, t-shirts of other podcasts too and i i, I love that because i i always have the secret hope that like i don't really wear my night veil shirt except like around the house or i'm painting or something but i will you know i will wear my uh 99 invisible or hello from the magic tavern t-shirt or something somewhere and uh you know hope i get like a finger gun from somebody <laughs> right or like or like going to the live show is like a thing you can go do to meet other people who like this thing yeah so there's more value to it is there a sense that because fan support keeps things going and because you have such like a direct relationship with fans that they feel some sort of say over what happens on the show no i love hearing from fans i get a lot of things on twitter and on email and tumblr and things like that artistically we keep the fan input kind of at, 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 at an arm's length away only because the show became popular because Joseph and I created a show we we wanted in, to, to hear and a show that we thought we would enjoy listening to and then a whole bunch of other people fell in love with that in the same way that we did and uh, so we we have to keep writing the show that people like not the show they think they would like yeah I just have noticed on YouTube because they are they think 
well, we made you. (laughs) (laughs) And then they get all upset if you disappoint them, quote unquote, in any way. It is a real thing that there's sometimes a lack of respect of you're an artist making something. And just because I liked a thing you did doesn't mean you owe me anything in the future. Um, There's been at least one occasion where somebody came up with this really amazing connection between two disparate plot elements in Nightfield that was so perfect and also so completely accidental on our parts Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) that we just decided to make it official. And I will never uh, tell which part it is because I'd like to just take credit for how perfectly it worked out. Yeah. Um, but it was right. entirely someone being like, hey, did you notice that there's this plot thing and then this plot thing? Do you think they're related? And Jeffrey and I saw that and we're like, yes, they are now. They are now. <laughs> oh, Allison and I do that all the time. <laughs> That's amazing. Also, the culture of like uh, people who write... Uh, I didn't know what slash fiction was until we started Night Vale. And I yes, absolutely, me neither. I absolutely <clears throat> adore it now. It's super great. And I didn't really know much about fan art. And that's been a really cool thing, too, especially for a non-visual uh, show. I remember listening to your show and there was some vague thing about Cecil having tattoos. And then all of a sudden, all the fan art was like him with tattoos. And I was like, I guess this guy has tattoos now. Yeah. Like, I, I, I will tell you that. There's never been anything about Cecil having tattoos. Yeah. That but never... I think of it as the truth. <laughs> yeah. But I, like that, it, that did not come from the show even a little bit. Like there, yeah, there was really never amazing. any mention yeah. of that. It's really amazing because that, that implication somehow made it into like a common view of, of Cecil as kind of like a, a, a tatted up Tyler Oakley. And it's really amazing. And it's, uh, I don't, I, I don't thought know. for sure that that came from the show. Uh-uh. No. Purple no. vest did not come from the show. Blonde hair did not come from the show. What? Tattoos yeah. did not come from the show. And yeah. all of us are just like, yes, mm-hmm, this yep. is what this person looks like. Well, it's I, this weird thing for me, I think, where I totally recognize that that's a Night Vale fan thing. But at the same time, I feel absolutely no connection to that depiction of Cecil at all. When people really? draw pictures of like a blonde guy with tattoos in a purple vest or dress up like that, it's cool. I don't feel like that has anything to do with me like it does i don't feel like it has anything to do with my writing i don't think feel like it has anything to do with my character it's just sort of the separate thing that fans made for themselves i mean i I, yeah i'm with joseph on that too i've never like felt a a connection to like oh that's my art depicted uh in 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 cosplay or whatever uh only simply for the fact of like yeah i i'm excited for it because i'm like wow that's a fan that has delved so deep into something that we've created that they are dressing up as kind of uh, almost in the uniform of the club itself, right? Like mm-hmm. to be to to show off. Like some people buy a T-shirt and some people make a costume, and uh, and those are both really exciting for me to be like, oh, you like us so much that you want to wear it in some form or fashion. Yeah, I mean, there's this weird kind of political dimension to it too, that because I've definitely seen this pointed out on Tumblr of there's this sort of. Uh, And it's very strange because Tumblr is a very social justice oriented platform, but there is this weird thing where (laughs) anytime there's a character that the appearance of is not super described or is abstract, fan art of it tends to become very Aryan, which is very strange. You, You know, you have Cecil 
could look like anyone and you end up with this very tall blonde blue-eyed man and they right. you know i've seen other examples given of characters that have no particular depiction or are like you know for instance there's some character i think from gravity falls that's like a pyramid or something and when people do fan art they tend to draw him as a tall blonde blue-eyed man um <laughs> weird and it's, it's, yeah as a as a Jew, and as like, you know, for instance, we actually recently made it canon that the character Cecil is Jewish. There's definitely a large uh, group on Tumblr, too, that, that definitely pushes for a more diverse representation of, of Cecil, especially since he's never been visually described. So there are a lot of people who would be like, there's no reason why Cecil couldn't be yeah. First, First Nations or uh, black or uh, he's, he's Asian. He's Jewish, or, so yeah, I, he, yeah. now he is Lenny Kravitz. Right. See? There you go. Perfect. And... Um, there are certainly characters that I think there's like coded language that I think while like a character like Tamika Flynn, we've mm-hmm. never stated in one way or the other what she looks like other than she's a teenager and she destroyed some librarians. But I think definitely uh, there's certainly uh, coding in the name there that every, yeah. most people depict her uh, uh, as uh, as black. We certainly don't want to like strip every. Joseph and I are very disinterested in like detailing physical descriptions of characters. Yeah, you don't really do it. It's very unimportant and it's sort of boring, and it also just brings a lot of baggage to a character if you start describing their body type or their race or whatever. Um, You know, unless it's vitally important to who they are. But it it is also important that we use things like, uh, you know, use things like language to make sure that people have. A better picture so that the the default isn't that everybody is blonde haired and blue eyed. Have there ever been deals that you were like, oh, I wish we didn't have to turn that down. That was a lot of money. Or like someone trying to buy Night Vale wholesale? Uh, I don't think anybody has approached us to wholesale buy Night Vale. We've definitely had a lot, especially when we were first blowing up of a lot of people with like, I'm with a TV studio or a movie production company or I'm a producer or I'm a, a publisher or whatever. And you had a lot of people. We make board like games. A, we make board games and video games and things like that. And we'd like to turn this thing into that thing. And, um, you know, for the most part, we never really because, you know, they're not going to nobody's going to send you an email like that and then include a price in it because there's going to be a long drawn out negotiation for them to figure out what it is your interest is in first. So I don't. I don't know in us either declining or not even responding to some of those uh, requests. I have no idea how much money was left on the table. I never really thought about it in those terms. A lot of it was we just knew we liked Night Vale a lot. We loved making it, and it was a thing we wanted to keep making and still want to keep making. And uh, so all we could do was just put our head down and say, let's keep doing this and maintain control over it, which is why there isn't a Night Vale video game, which is why there isn't certain things Night Vale, because it was it, there's a lot of things we have less control over, and it takes a longer time to sort of talk with people that we are comfortable with and that we could be involved with the creative process on it. Uh, And things like doing a live show is a thing we can produce ourselves. And publishing a book is a thing we could do ourselves, although we ultimately wanted to go with a publisher, with uh, HarperCollins, because uh, they were so supportive of exactly what we wanted to do with the book. And that was a case where, okay, so you take money from a big corporation who, you know, publishes your book and helps market it and blah, blah, blah. But we also knew that the whole way through we would have total control artistically over what we, do, uh, what we did, or at least we had great confidence. And in the end, that proved to be true. 
So you're playing the long a long game that I think a lot of creators want to sell out immediately. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I find the whole idea of selling out just kind of a silly one. Like to me, yeah. to me, it's an it's an idea that devalues what artists do. Um, because uh, if you like art and you like artists, then you should like artists to be able to make a living. And right. um, there's a lot involved in that. And a, mo- a lot of it involves business. And so if you start dismissing art the moment it touches business, then what you're saying is that artists shouldn't eat. Um, <laughs> right. Or you you should be fighting like hell for the government to provide huge grants for individual artists, even starting out artists. That That's your other option. But... The whole idea of selling out, I think, is ultimately an anti-art idea. I do think people, like fans of things, or at least I see this in myself and other people I'm around, you, you sort of relate to an artistic thing or an artist by sort of what you th- – I think what you think they are and where you think they're coming from. And there are people who make a thing and then the moment it becomes successful, they bow out of it and that thing kind of continues as a corporate entity. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think that once people recognize an artistic product as a corporate entity, I think the relationship to that product changes a little bit. And I think one of the things that's really helped Nightville, and I think it's more significant than lack of ads, because I, while I think we would get some a lot of brushback if we started putting ads on Nightvale, uh, I do think that the fact that it, it, it is me and Joseph and, and one full-time employee doing all of Nightvale. There's that recognition that there's not like Disney label over the top of Welcome to Night Vale or whatever, mm-hmm. Disney per se, whatever, but just giant corporation. Um, it's, so it doesn't quite have that faceless thing happening. And so I think people still feel like this is a very, I think they still recognize it as a super independent project. And um, like a passion project. Yes, definitely. I feel like people fall into these successes, like how Night Vale became really successful and then they don't know what to do with it. I think the question you have to ask yourself immediately upon receiving any popular attention is, what do I want to do? And that's the hardest question you will ever ask yourself because it's a question you've asked yourself when you were in junior high and high school and college. And it's, but now it suddenly means something because there's a lot more uh, immediacy to it. So I think going into any project, you have to know, is this something that I would want to do? Because I think popular attention can come positive or negative at any moment in your life if you are a person who's online. And I think uh, knowing what it is you want to do and focusing on that. And if it's a thing where like, hey, you made a video talking about your favorite sandwiches and it got really popular and you love talking about sandwiches, then suddenly, yeah, focus on how you can keep talking about sandwiches and have people like it. And maybe you can grow that. If you really hate sandwiches and you made it and you were being sarcastic and people didn't get that you were sarcastic, you're like more sandwich videos that you may want to see if you can sell that idea off to somebody and then move on to something else. Um, but I think always focusing on the thing you want to do and making it in the way that you want to make it just always be in control of what you're doing uh jeffrey and i both come out of the world of like downtown experimental theater and Mm -hmm. um so i think i starting out we approach night veil the way we'd approach like a show there where it's just like oh here's here's this weird idea let's figure out how to make it and make it like a lot of it is losing the inhibition on thinking your shit is worth something Uh like oh you you have to be so arrogant yeah, it's just, you have to believe that what you're doing is worth being paid for because very rarely in any art world will anyone be like, hey, you're doing art 
you know what occurs to me? I should pay you for that. <laughs> I know. There's definitely a culture of begging uh, in the world of independent artists, like this idea of like, I've got to write this grant proposal. God, I have to get this grant. Uh, how do I carefully word it? How do they know how much I respect and adore this foundation? I think people are so convinced that they can't do it on their own and then they, and, or they can't do it unless it's perfect or they can't do it unless it's already popular or whatever, that they don't even try. I learned a lot about making art and the why we make art from the theater company I, I was involved with for many years here in New York called the New York Neo-Futurists. And the thing about the Neo-Futurists is they do this show every Friday and Saturday night in New York and Chicago and San Francisco, and it is 30 plays in 60 minutes. And the thing is, is that every week there's 30 short plays. There's a timer on the wall. You may not finish all the plays. The timer goes off. Everyone goes home, you, whether you saw them all or not. And at the end of every weekend, you throw away a bunch of plays and you write new ones for the next week. And the whole idea as a writer and a performer and a creator for the neo-futurist, which is you learn, make art and make a lot of it and make it timely and make it local and make it mean something to your audience and make it mean something to you and enjoy the hell out of what you do because it's really, really exhausting and hard. Um, and and I feel like I've just sort of approached – We I think Joseph and I both approached making Night Vale in that way. It was just one more cool thing we could do together as creators. And it was this other cool thing and we exist in a world – wherein with a $60 USB mic and free audio editing software and $5 a month web hosting uh, for a podcast, you could put a thing up that you made um, and that was it. And we kept it very low budget because we're theater people and theater's expensive and we approach podcasting with the same thing. But Night Vale was a thing that was good from the beginning because we enjoyed making it and we knew as writers it was good work. Whether or not anybody ever liked it is beside the point. It was already it successful. It's a precious thing. Like this is yeah. our one idea. Right. And we were going to – if Night Vale had never taken off, we probably would have come up with some of these other podcast ideas and maybe made more because we really love podcasting. And the thing is is that I didn't know if – Night Vale was perfect. It's not. Um, but at the time, I wasn't concerned with perfection. And Joseph, mm-hmm. I don't think, was either. Just get a thing up and make art you like with people you like. And I feel like that's the number one thing. And if you do that enough, there's no guarantee you'll ever be paid off for it. No guarantee that you'll have great financial success. Um, but if you like doing it, that's that's really the only thing you do have control over is whether or not you uh, enjoy the work you make. It's interesting to think about selling out. I know that having ads is how I'm able to keep doing Just Between Us, my YouTube show, and how I'm able to keep doing Bad With Money. But I also know that the not having ads has made Jeffrey and Joseph's fan base the most engaged, loyal, and hardcore fan base that they are. And so I wanted to figure out that toss-up. But I think me being honest with you guys about needing money makes you guys feel close to me, right guys? We're all close. We're all friends. Ultimately, my relationship with you guys as my fans is my own, and it wouldn't be authentic if I wasn't doing it my own way. I really, really, really respect these guys. I really think they're geniuses. And on the flip side, I'm happy to take money from ads because I will turn down stuff that I don't believe in, My producer can attest to that. And I will only do the ad if I can put my spin on it. So I'm not going to tell you 
to buy this product for your husband. I'm going to tell you to buy it for your partner or yourself. Uh, and that's a small taste of me putting my perspective and me putting myself into the ad that I hope is appreciated. Oh, God, please don't abandon this show. listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate us in iTunes, subscribe, and tell all your friends who are also bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who run massive conglomerates like Strex Corp. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is Panoply's director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Our engineer is Jeremy Underwood. Original music for our show is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Our show art is by Cameron Glavin. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye!